I next met with Dr. Ken Bauer to discuss ash papers related to thrombosis, and Dr. Bauer began by commenting on an ambitious trial attempting to define in a phase three setting the optimal management of patients with massive deep venous thrombosis. So this late-breaking abstract addressed the issue of what do you do in patients with really massive deep venous thrombosis. Now, we're not talking about the so-called entity of phlegmasia cerulea dolans, but we're really talking about people with bad proximal DVTs, big clot burdens extending into their upper leg, going into the iliac veins. So one of the areas of interest for many years has been the use of aggressive therapies, be it thrombolysis or more modern-day catheter-directed thrombolysis, or even doing stents or mechanical types of thrombectomies, again, done by interventional radiologists. The issues with this area, going back to the old days of streptokinase, was it was never clearly shown by the trials then that the outcomes in terms of post-thrombotic or post-phlebitic syndrome were really better. Post-phlebitic syndrome is a very important complication of deep venous thrombosis with about 25% of patients after a single major proximal DVT suffering chronic post-clot syndrome with pain, swelling, skin changes in their legs. So this particular abstract is the first of several major actually methodologically well-done randomized trials asking whether catheter-directed thrombolysis or even other interventions are better than anticoagulation alone. So this was a Norwegian trial that used catheter-directed thrombolysis plus anticoagulation versus anticoagulation alone. And all people also wore compression stockings, which is one of the sort of accepted modalities too to reduce post syndrome and looked at outcomes. So they first looked at patency at six months, which remarkably, there was no significant difference in patency. But the other endpoint that was now reported in this trial was at two years post-thrombotic syndromes using a score called the Vialta score, which includes both patient clinical assessment as well as objective findings. And they actually used either with post-thrombotic syndrome or without. So there are different ways to use this score. But basically what they showed in this randomized trial with a little under 100 patients each arm is a 14% reduction in post-phlebitic syndrome as measured by Vialta score at two years. So that was significant. I think it is an important finding. The p-value was just a tad, though, under 0.05 at 0.047, but I think it's the first relatively methodologically sound trial to clearly show a benefit for aggressive, at least thrombolysis in post-clot syndrome. I think first clinical assessment of the patient with respect to the clot burden and the consequences of the patient. You want to do, of course, an ultrasound assessment of the leg to see how extensive the clot is. Then another issue that's important is, does the clot actually extend up proximally into the iliac veins and even into the pelvic veins? Now, ultrasound of the leg is not a great way to look at those more proximal clots. So sometimes you need to go to either CT venograms or MRI venography, which 
which is probably the best way to do. So that issue, and of course, then if you're going to do it, you want patients whose clot is relatively recent because fresh clots are going to be more susceptible to these interventions, be it lysis or you know stenting or mechanical approaches. And of course, the bleeding risks, because there is a cost to pay in terms of increased bleeding. There's also increased hospitalization, interventions, and costs. But I think if you have a person who doesn't have risk factors for bleeding, who has a bad leg, who doesn't have active cancer, of course, with active bleeding, I think it's something that seriously should be considered if patients are very symptomatic because the morbidity of post-clot syndrome can be great. Now, what was the excess risk of bleeding in this study? And was it systemic bleeding elsewhere or local? Yeah. So they didn't have what, again, remember they used local catheter-directed thrombolysis. So they're not using, you know, systemic thrombolysis. So one didn't see any cases of dreaded intracerebral hemorrhage, which of course is the major feared complication. So it's lower dose thrombolysis. So there was an excess of hematomas at the catheter site and so forth. Really modest in terms of major bleeding. There were, I think, only a few major bleeds. There was more of what they called clinically relevant non-major bleeds. In total, those were about 20 cases, but I think the number of major bleeds was much smaller. So how about this Abstract 205, the randomized trial, the RECOVER-2 study of Dipigatron versus Warfarin? So this is one of the trials in the new oral anticoagulant arena. We're obviously now in the early phases of having several new oral agents, selective targeted anticoagulants that either target thrombin, which dabigatran is, or factor 10A, which rivaroxaban and others to come will make it to market relatively soon and will have an expanding array of options as alternatives to warfarin. So we're really entering a new era. And the challenge will be, should we use a new agent as opposed to existing agents, as well as which of the new agents? So dabigatran was the first of these oral agents. It is an oral direct thrombin inhibitor to be approved in the United States over a year ago for stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation, which is the only clinical indication that dabigatran enjoys. Now, outside of atrial fibrillation, there have been ongoing programs for treatment of acute deep venous thrombosis, as well as secondary prevention, as well as prophylaxis. None of those are yet approved for dabigatran, but this is the second trial now where dabigatran was compared against warfarin for treatment of acute venous thromboembolism, the RECOVER-2 trial. The RECOVER-1 trial was actually published in late 2009 in the New England Journal. So this trial really had an identical design. What all patients did was they initially received a low molecular heparin for five days minimum, and then were either in a blinded fashion put on warfarin or dabigatran for six months at the same dose that's approved in atrial fibrillation, 150 milligrams twice a day, and looked at outcomes. And basically what we see is dabigatran as compared to warfarin is every bit as good as warfarin in preventing recurrences. The major bleed rates are pretty much spot on with warfarin. There's a little bit less clinically relevant non-major bleeding with dabigatran. One of the signals though that's emerging not so much in this trial, but in some of the others, is a slightly higher rate of myocardial infarction. And that's something that 
we've seen in several of the dabigatran trials. A very small signal, but it seems to be popping up here and there. And this trial was pretty small. Any pathophysiologic explanation for why you might see it? Well, there have been two major schools of thought on this. One is going back to old days, old trials, warfarin, particularly at higher INRs, INRs from some of the trials of 2.8 to 4.3 or something like that. Warfarin obviously was an effective drug in secondary prevention of MI. So the question is, is it not that dabigatran is promoting MIs, but that warfarin is more protective? So that's one of the schools of thought. But it also may be popping up in secondary prevention trials against placebo, you know, so now we're talking about what do we do with the idiopathic DVT or pulmonary embolization after they've been treated three or six months. Some of them will stop warfarin, but sometimes patients go extended warfarin. There we're looking against a placebo arm. So in those trials, which we're yet to see published, we'll have to be looking very carefully too, whether there's a higher rate of MI than baseline, because there you won't have the potential effect. What is warfarin doing? Is it really that it's really not a higher effect, but that warfarin is protective if you follow. So it seems like the incidence, though, of coronary events was extremely small. Any sort of overall intuitive guess about if there's a risk, how much it is? I think it's very small. I mean, we saw that in the RELIA trial against warfarin. Now, that's in stroke prevention and atrial fibrillation, where it was just at the margins of 0.05. So we're looking at a very small signal here. And I think, you know, other than perhaps the coronary-prone patient, somebody who's had coronary disease, I don't think that would be a real disincentive to use this agent. I think the major issue with respect to venous thromboembolism treatment that will come with the new agents is the fact that some of the 10A agents, particularly the oral direct factor 10A inhibitors, rivaroxaban, not yet approved for treatment of venous thromboembolism, but also apixaban, in their trials are using a one-drug approach for acute DVT and PE treatment, as opposed to the dabigatran studies, which have used a two-drug. So they've just replaced the warfarin, they've continued with the heparin. In my view, if in fact the one-drug approach with the anti-10A drugs is effective, as certainly we saw in the first Einstein trial, and there's a pulmonary embolism trial. If we have the one-drug approach being every bit as effective as a two-drug approach, I see that to be really an enormous advance and in the initial treatment of VT because it's enormous simplification to do away with the need of a parenteral agent altogether with no monitoring for three to six months. So I think the 10 agents, which have used that one drug approach, I think have a real potential once they're approved to really result in a major paradigm shift for most patients with acute DVT or PE. So the next abstract I wanted to ask you about is a topic near and dear to the heart of medical oncologists. Our colleague Dan George, who works with us on prostate cancer programs, renal cell cancer programs, has headed this effort. I think he first reported it at ASCO, and then he reported some more data at the ASH meeting looking at semuloparin and patients getting chemo. So this is a interesting area, both to oncologists as well as hematologists interested in thrombosis. There's been long interest in what is it about cancer that 
promotes a prothrombotic state, and it's an area of continuing ongoing great interest, both mechanistically and clinically. A lot of the attention currently is focused around the role of tissue factor microparticles as being one of the pathophysiological mechanisms leading to increased thrombotic risk. We, of course, know that cancer patients in the hospital are at higher risk, but of course, thrombosis is a multifactorial process, so there are many risk factors in play. But what about in the outpatient arena? You know, we know that venous thromboembolism is a significant complication of cancer. It also is emerging with some of the newer treatment modalities which are available as a risk that goes along with some of the newer agents. I mean, this has been most dramatically seen with lenalidomide and high doses of dexamethasone in myeloma, but it's across tumor types. There's been a signal with bevacizumab. So the question has been, are there cancer patients who would benefit by having primary prophylaxis with a low molecular heparin? And there was one randomized trial done with a low molecular heparin in Europe by the Italian group called the PROTECT trial, which was published in Lancet Oncology a year or two ago, showing a significant reduction against placebo using that low molecular heparin. This trial now is a trial with a new ultra-low molecular heparin, semiloparin, against placebo in cancer patients receiving initial chemotherapy. And what they show... Can I just clarify one thing, though, before you go on? Because these were people, I believe who had metastatic disease, because there are a lot of people in oncology practice getting adjuvant chemo, but I think we should clarify that's not what this looked at. Absolutely. This is metastatic or locally advanced because, you know, obviously adjuvant would have a very low risk of having thrombosis using current regimens. But I think you hit at the crux of still the problem, because if you look at the primary data from the SAVE-ONCO that Dan George presented at ASCO, this was a subset analysis using a risk score developed by Alok Karana at Rochester, and he's published on this risk score. But if you look at all the data in this high-risk metastatic or locally advanced group, while the semiloparin was effective in reducing the risk of venous thromboembolism, the rate was only reduced from 3.4% down to 1.2%. Now, you have to realize that's a three and a half month duration, median duration patients were on the study because they were only on it during first chemotherapy regimen. But still, when you look at all the data, is that risk of 3.4% enough in the placebo that any anticoagulant, be it an injectable or let's say an oral, is indicated. So I think it goes to then the issue, can we do a better job figuring out who the really high-risk people are? And that's where the Corona score comes in. And that's what this particular abstract looked at. They use this Corona risk score, which include a number of parameters such as tumor type, also body mass index, use of an erythropoietic agent, actually, interestingly, higher platelet counts over 350 or hemoglobin less than 10 were in the risk score that he developed and validated. But you can see even in the high risk score greater than three, even though the reduction with semiloparin was still present, the incidence of VTE was only 5.4%. So I think this speaks to the issue that we really need to have a better way to figure out who the really high risk people are, even to do better than identifying a 5% risk to convince clinicians who they should really prophylax. That becomes the problem because it's really not standard of care yet to use any anticoagulant unless somebody has a prior history of thrombosis. Can you put in context, sort of from a risk-benefit analysis point of view, 
what the risk of bleeding is, and particularly serious bleeding compared to the reduction in thrombosis. In this trial, actually, they were very comparable. They were about 1% in each group. So really, in terms of major bleeding, they didn't see any difference, which is good. So I think that's an important element in this, that there was no difference in bleeding. So, you know, whether obviously this drug, semuloparin, is not approved at this point, other drugs that you could use the in practice, if you had a high-risk patient, would be enoxaparin, dose of 40 milligrams probably, confers efficacy, or is the prophylactic dose probably in a way somewhat analogous here? So I think it's relatively safe to use these kinds of prophylactic doses in the cancer patient if one were to want to prophylax a patient you felt to be at high risk. The problem is we just can't put our finger very well on who's really very high risk to warrant giving an injectable, which of course is still not an inexpensive drug given the prices of low liquid heparin, even though it has gone generic. I think the major issue, this adjunctive therapy, is the issue of doing a daily injection for three and a half months. Now, some patients, obviously, who've chronically taken insulin, it's not a big deal, but I think it remains an issue. I think that many patients might not be all that keen to do the injections daily. And there, of course, is the potential opportunity of the newer anticoagulants in this arena, but I think we'll need to wait for trials because they may not have the same safety profile in these primary prophylaxis as a low molecular heparin or as we see in this trial, semuloparins. I think it's a very difficult decision to make who should we prophylax in the absence of any history or clear sense that they're very high risk, especially the patient who comes in the ambulatory cancer arena, which is what we're talking about. Any particular cancers that get you more thinking about it, like pancreatic? That, of course, is is the poster child for cancer-associated thrombosis. And the studies that have looked at cancer do show that that group is among the highest risk. The other one that's shown up quite strongly, and a common cancer is lung cancer, has also shown up strongly. There have also been a few surprises. Lymphoma shows up in the group of patients too, as a group, but pancreatic and gastric are clearly at the top, followed by lung ovarian are the others. It seems that the relative risk reduction for thrombosis is actually pretty high, over 50%. And I guess if we could identify people at a higher risk, the absolute benefit would be much greater. What's the current best way to assess risk? The Corona Rick store, I think, is using readily available clinical and laboratory parameters is the best validated. He actually has published on this in blood, both the initial derivation of the risk score based on a large database. I think he actually used a febrile neutropenia database initially, but then he actually validated prospectively. So it is validated. But again, you know, the issue is are we really getting at the very high-risk people? You can look at the data in the placebo group in this trial. The risk score of zero was 1.3%. The risk score of one to two was 3.5. And the risk score of greater or equal to three was 5.4. Can we get it up up to 10 or 20%? Can we really enrich it? And that's where maybe a biomarker together, the risk score, like whether it's from kind of tissue factor biomarker or a D-dime or something of that ish, would be useful to incorporate and really push us to the point where we can really identify these people. How about this paper 543 looking at aspirin, the Warfasa study? So this is one of, I think, the most interesting and provocative abstracts that was presented at the recent ASH meeting. 
most of us probably thought that this discussion over whether aspirin has any efficacy in preventing venous thromboembolism was over. <laughs> Obviously, aspirin is a value on the arterial side in terms of primary and secondary prevention of coronary disease and stroke. But in venous thromboembolism prevention, it really has not had a really strong track record. There have been occasional trials in the past showing some benefit. And I dare say the guidelines for orthopedic prophylaxis probably they're going to come out are probably going to be modified from what we saw in 2008. But anyway, this particular trial done by the Italians asked whether aspirin has value for secondary prophylaxis. So again, taking that idiopathic thromboembolism group I just discussed, can we put them on something as easy to do as aspirin, which doesn't carry the hemorrhage risk and the baggage that goes with warfarin, and get any efficacy in secondary prevention. And interestingly, this trial did show that aspirin, a dose of 100 milligrams daily compared to placebo, did result in about a 40% risk reduction in VT at two years from about a yearly rate of 11% down to 6%. I think before we accept this, though, I think we need to see the full manuscript. We've also heard about other agents like statins, which have efficacy in actually preventing venous thromboembolism in primary prophylaxis shown by the major Jupiter study, which was really a CRP directed biomarker study, seeing whether a potent statin reduces arterial disease, but it also prevented first venous thromboembolism. I must say, I would not start using aspirin at this point for secondary prevention if you're really worried about the patient having a recurrence. I think anticoagulants have, you know, 90, 90 plus percent risk reductions. Here we get 40%. This may be better than nothing, but the jury's still out in my mind. I guess we should say that's a relative risk reduction of 40%. Yes, yes. How about this paper, 545, perioperative heparin bridging? Yeah, so... The reality is bridging is widely done. It's also almost accepted as a standard of care for high-risk patients, be it you know atrial fibrillation or even high-risk VTE patients. The data to support the net clinical benefit of bridging is actually non-existent and actually even suggests it's deleterious because it leads to more bleeding than clots prevented, be it strokes or DVT. This meta-analysis just reinforced it. There are major clinical trials as a U.S. major NIH-funded trial actually looking at bridging. So I think the whole bridging question, while it's widely done, widely accepted, I think until we have a properly done randomized trial, whether that will really impact the standard. I think it likely will, whatever the results are. But I think this whole bridging thing is one of these things where it was accepted way in advance of data supporting it. A net clinical benefit may actually not be good. What about paper 674? You know, I think a lot of people kind of have a tough time. We were talking before about, you know, estimating the risk in patients with cancer, which cancer, which situations, etc. This paper looked at the incidence in the outpatient versus inpatient setting. Anything you want to say about that? Well, it's interesting because this was from Alok Karana, again, a very large database study. And there's some other abstracts here, too, about the whole issue of inpatient prophylaxis, not only in cancer patients, but medical patients. This whole area of medical prophylaxis is actually becoming quite controversial. There was a recent article in the Annals 
really taking issue with the universal application of thromboprophylaxis, even as a mandate, as done by JACO. There was just a recent study online in the England Journal showing no mortality benefit of low mycoid heparin used in hospital against stockings in medical patients. And the issue thing about Corona's thing is 80% of the cancer patients, VTE, are actually out of the hospital. They weren't even exposed to a hospitalization. So it comes back to that earlier abstract that, you know, four out of five of cancer-associated DVTs beginning in the outpatient arena are not associated with hospitalization, which goes back to the issue of trying to identify those higher-risk outpatients. But, you know, just in terms of overall, I mean, if I read this correctly, there is a more than a 20% risk in outpatients. Is that right? That's not the absolute number. 20% of those were associated with a hospitalization in the prior month. So again, it's the issue of if we really did much, much better in terms of prophylaxing people in the hospital, or even there's been interest in prophylaxing people for an extended period after they leave the hospital, would we lead to prevention? Because we know that hospitalization is a major risk factor. And it's not only in the first 30 days, it even extends out to 90 days. So it's really that 20% of those right, events were associated. Right. So it's, but it's the 80% that people weren't even in the hospital within the previous index period of 100 days, which is previously, that they really started in the outpatient right. arena, which folks focuses, again, on the cancer-related issues in the outpatient arena, which I think is of most importance to the practicing oncologist. 